This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Peter Shields. Peter is the Deputy Director of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, and he's a lung cancer expert. Today, we're going to talk about a new statewide James lung cancer program. It's called the Beating Lung Cancer Initiative in Ohio, and it's funded by Pelotonia. And it's really vital. Here's why. In 2018, an estimated 10,000 Ohio residents will be diagnosed with lung cancer, and about 7,200 Ohio residents will die from lung cancer. The goal of the Beating Lung Cancer Initiative is to utilize advanced genetic testing on stage four lung cancer patients to determine the best course of treatment for them and to save lives. There's also a stop smoking component in the program because about 30% of all lung cancer patients keep smoking even after they're diagnosed, which is a sign of just how addictive smoking can be. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So before we dive into the the new initiative, I think it would be helpful for you helpful if you gave us a little background on lung cancer and why it's so hard to treat and and why so many people don't do well. Yes, as you mentioned, it's about ten thousand uh, people in Ohio uh, translates into almost two hundred twenty thousand people across the United States. Lung cancer is way too common; it's the leading cause of cancer deaths, uh, and it's basically in most people a smoking related disease. So about 80% or so, 90% are either smokers, former smokers, or we're living with people with smokers, so secondhand smoke. There's a handful and it's a growing number of people with lung cancer who have no history of smoking or relationship to smoking, and that's a unique problem in and of itself. The problem with smoking is that it's silent until it's not. And for most patients... Silent meaning symptoms are silent. That's right. They have no idea they have it. You talk to the patients when they get diagnosed. You find out that they kind of been losing weight or not feeling quite right. They attribute it to old age. And by the time it really causes symptoms, it's usually large and something that can't be either treated with surgery or radiation. Um, A good number of them are. And a lot of those are even found by coincidence. So someone gets into a car accident or they... Um, go to the doctor and get an x-ray for some unrelated reason. Oh, and they'll see something on the lungs. Right. They're going for hip surgery or something. So that's usually where we find the smallest ones. There's a strong movement now to get the word out that actually for regular smokers and former smokers um, uh, who've been smoking at over the age of um, 50 or 55 that they should get yearly CAT scans to try to find these earlier enough. Certainly those save lives. But unfortunately, um, most patients who come in, it's already spread, and so it can't be operated on or treated with surgery. Spread meaning metastatic, it's gone outside of the lungs to other parts of the body? Or across, yes, or across the lungs so that it can't be treated in a, in a single way. Across so, the lungs meaning from one, one side to the other? Exactly. Okay. Or it gets into the pleural area, the outer lining of the lungs, so that it can't, so you really can't treat that part. And once that happens, unfortunately, it's never going to be curable. Now, we're getting closer, um, but, but where we're really making strides today is turning this into more of a chronic illness. I mean, we're not there, but I could tell you that there have been substantially new therapies that have been approved in just the last couple of years that we're more than doubling the survival of our patients. And some patients are now living with lung cancer for three, four, five years. That's remarkable. Just six years ago, Almost all the patients, the conversations we had were always sad, and we're talking in terms of a year, if we can get someone there in a year. And they're thinking, boy, am I going to make it to next Christmas or New Year's? 
And now the conversations are, you know, you might be one of the unlucky ones, but it's more likely that you'll be around for a couple of years or longer. And that's, you know, a different perspective on life. And it's not uncommon now with some of the targeted therapies we have where people take pills or in immunotherapies that people are living with the cancer with those treatments for two, three years before they even need to go on to another uh, uh, treatment. And I know you've told me this before, that the idea is if you can keep someone around for two, three, four years, something new is going to be developed that can help them for another couple of years. And it's almost like a some sort of virtuous cycle to keep them going longer. Yeah. So across all cancers, the treatments are just remarkable. And for lung cancer in particular, it's kind of the poster child. So it's like every week there's a new combination of therapy that's been approved by the FDA and new uh, paper published in some important journal with a definitive therapy. I mean, we're changing practice almost by the week, it seems, um, certainly by every couple of months. And so that's, you know, really great, of course, and we're giving new hopes to patients uh, and we're making a difference with the science and the research uh, that's going on. So this, I, so this is certainly an exciting time for cancer treatment and lung cancer treatment. And that sort of brings us to the Beating Lung Cancer Initiative. And this is the third uh, statewide uh, program funded by Pelotonia that we've been talking about on this podcast. And that's pretty amazing. So give us sort of the background of how it came about that you set this up and how the program is going to work. Right. So um, the first the first uh, project we had was the statewide colon cancer project. So that's the uh, what we call the Ohio Colon Cancer Prevention Initiative. And we are very lucky to enjoy very strong community support through Pelotonia. And as we were talking to our advisors on how to be the most impactful, um, they looked at us and said, well, if people in Ohio are supporting this, why don't you do your great research at the same time that will help them that day um, for people who are living in Ohio? And we thought about that and we kind of banged our heads against the wall thinking, why didn't we think of that ourselves? And so within minutes, um, there were shovel-ready projects that were very impactful, and the colon cancer study got uh, into the field first. The amazing thing about those docs, um, Heather Hample and Dr. Uh, Albert de la Chapelle, is that they established this statewide network of research partners. Right. So informal affiliations, but hospitals who wanted to be part of this. That gave us incredible reach across the state. That colon cancer prevention initiative finished. And we have all these great partners who really made major contributions. We're thinking, what's next? So what was next was this lung cancer project, what we call Beating Lung Cancer in Ohio, BLCIO for short. And how fill us in on how the Beating Lung Cancer in Ohio works. Well, there's two components to it. The first one, the, the major part, is capitalizing on this idea that lung cancer treatment's getting really complicated. And not enough um, patients were getting the complex testing. Genetic testing. The genetic testing. And, and even, although less so now, even the, the testing for immunotherapy. And how to combine all of that together is, is really complicated. Um, and if things are changing by the day, we thought that we have a particular expertise of the James that really could get out into the community and be helpful to docs. So myself and, and my six other people in the group, we only do lung cancer. 
You know, we travel all over the world to go to meetings and we talk about lung cancer with other lung cancer docs all across, you know, the world. And if I were in private practice, I would really be challenged to try to keep up with everything. Right. It's really there's, hard. Yeah, there's so many advances and so right. many different kinds of cancer. Right, and there's and there's great resources, and that's not to say anything negative about the quality of the doc. Um, th- the information does get to them, but we thought we could speed that along, and we thought that we could test that speed, and you know, essentially free advice, what we call a, a genomics tumor board, that would go to the docs. Um, we would offer the genetic testing, the immunotherapy testing, free at time of diagnosis. So that's also relatively new to the lung cancer field. The, this is for all the people in Ohio newly diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Well, we're going to enroll about 2,500 to 3,000 okay. patients into it, and half of them will get randomized. So, so half of them, the docs will do what they normally do, and the other half will get this fancier testing um, that a lot of insurance companies won't pay for. And we'll give the genomics board advice, and I'll explain how that will work in a second. And we'll see if we impact two important things. Of course, we want to improve survival, have patients live longer through this testing and advice. But we also want them to have better quality of life. And there aren't many studies that really incorporate both as equal importance. And when patients are faced with a diagnosis of a disease that they're not going to survive from, some think about survival no matter what. Some think about quality of life no matter what. And different people have different balances between the two. So we thought a lot about that. And we said, well, how can we you know, incorporate that both into, into one study? And then what's really important here is that most of the studies that are done that where we improve patients' survival or quality of life with cancer, they're done in academic settings like Ohio State. And they're done with pre-selected patients who are the healthiest among the group. Oh. Most of our patients are not like that. Right. They're coming in with significant heart disease and respiratory disease and on medications and past medical histories. I mean, it's life. And so they don't get into these studies. And it, Is that because people who are smokers are predisposed to have other health issues and perhaps be overweight and all those things uh, combine? That's to, right. To make their, yeah. And okay. the experimental studies on people are designed to be a pure experiment. So you don't, so you don't want yeah. other, what we call comorbidities. You don't want, I, I hate to be so blunt, but you don't want someone who's going to die of heart disease before they finish the clinical trial. You know, so a lot of these people with a lot of comorbid morbid conditions get filtered out. And then you go from an academic center that has a level of support that's not often available in the community or different types of community support, the outcomes might be different in the community versus the academic centers. And even in our academic center, most of our patients are not eligible for clinical trials. So, you know, how do we help all these folks? And so what we thought is if we can get to the testing out to people quickly, we, at the time of diagnosis, it takes about 14 days to get the results back from this testing. But at the same time the doctor gets it, the treating physician, we get at the same time. And within 24 hours or 48 hours, we get to the doctor and say, hey, here's what's there. In, here's, the, in, the can, in their lung cancer. In the lung cancer patient. And here's what we would do. And here's your options. And there are several options. And if you want us to help you prioritize, we're available for you. 
So the care stays entirely with the local physician. The local physician and the patient make whatever decisions they want. And we're there to find research studies for them, to give advice, to track what happens to the patients across the state so that we can improve care for everybody. And so then as the patient progresses, because they eventually will off their first therapy, the doctor is free to contact us and say, okay, so Mrs. Jones is now progressing. Based on that initial testing and what I've learned, you know, what would be next? And if the doc doesn't want to ask us or ask us or follow our advice, that's entirely up to them. But we'll say, okay, so now, now you're getting to a trickier situation, but there's a clinical trial and not just at Ohio State, but whatever the geography is for the patient. So anywhere in the state or Pennsylvania or Kentucky, we'll say, well, you know, there's a really interesting trial for this patient at case, you know, you know, university or, or University of Pittsburgh or in California. You know, we always assume that maybe patients don't want to travel except for the patient who's got the brother who lives in Los Angeles. Right. You know, so we'll start making advice on clinical trials as well as a way of helping patients. Now, docs may now want to offer it. Um, docs may know that the patient may not be interested in it, but we're providing all this information. When it comes time to maybe a recommendation that's not FDA approved but makes sense, doctors often have to, you know, convince the insurance companies to pay for it. We can provide the doc at least with the scientific references to help them. So oh. the doctor could say, you know, this was published two weeks ago. You know, so I want to give this medicine to my patient. But that's a great point. You you can show the insurance companies this is this person has the genetic mutation that qualifies them for this drug or this clinical trial or this treatment. Right. It's not yet FDA approved, but, but given the patient's medical history, this is the one that makes most sense. And insurance companies, you know, they'll look at that and they may say no. But if they but if the doctor has the scientific data, then the insurance companies are obviously more likely to say yes. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Peter Shields to hear more about the Beating Lung Cancer Initiative in Ohio. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At the James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. Pelotonia is driven by their vision, a world where we are all healthier and empowered to live our best lives, lives filled with hope and possibility. In only nine years, the Pelotonia community, through their annual cycling event, has raised more than $157 million to accelerate funding for innovative cancer research at the James. The Pelotonia community knows that when we push ourselves individually and as a community, we can achieve great things. As Pelotonia celebrates their 10th anniversary, Pelotonia wants you to be part of making this vision a reality. To learn how you can get involved, please visit pelotonia.org. That's P-E-L-O-T-O-N-I-A.org. Let's change the world together. We're back with Dr. Peter Shields, and we're talking about the Beating Lung Cancer Initiative in Ohio. And Peter, one thing I think that I want to make sure I understand is exactly how do you get the, the sample or the biopsy of the lung cancer 
uh, from these people in Ohio that you're going to be part that are going to be part of the program. Yeah, so this is important. So we want to impact standard of care. We don't want to do anything unusual for the patient. We want to, you know, get us into the process of of the normal care that a doc would do. So the test itself, the genetic test, comes from a previous biopsy of the patient. And so we're not asking a patient to go through another invasive procedure. In many cases, that biopsy got used up or was too small for the testing, in which case we can do a blood test. Um, blood test, wow. Uh, the blood test uh, just doesn't test as many genes, um, but it's a good test. All of this work is done by uh, a company in Boston, Foundation Medicine, that um, is providing uh, substantial expertise and resources to us. Um, they're pioneers in the field. Of course, we wouldn't work with them if they weren't pioneers in the field. And so uh, with their expertise, we're trying to improve all of this. I mean, they recognize that there's a big research gap um, out in the community for um, this balance of quality and life and survival. The other thing um, I didn't mention earlier, which is very important, is all these studies about, for example, quality of life or, or survival are usually about the one drug that they tested or the combination of drugs that they tested. Quality of life is then and not what happens next. In our study, we're going to be tracking what happens as patients cycle through different therapies. And that's really important because it may be different for how people feel if they start with one therapy that goes to another versus the other way around. Oh, the order in which the therapies are delivered could impact quality of life. Exactly. And potentially even survival. Uh And so studies don't test that. um, But we'll be able to take a look at that. And, and that's really important because if you have a patient who's starting off with what would be predicted to do better in terms of performance status and quality of life, they may be more willing to take you know, certain therapies over others because we can at least give them some information about how the future would look for at least the average patient. So this is the perfect example of the there right. is no routine cancer. That's Every, right. You're going to look at everyone's that's right. genetic mutations. And how many... It, when you do this panel, how many genetic mutations will you be looking for? Well, there's 300-some-odd genes we're looking for genes, mutations, okay. mutations in those. Um, there's a lot of different potential mutations. You know, it may be estimated that there might be as many as 60% of patients with the most common type of lung cancer uh, that may have some treatment, either FDA-approved or a clinical trial for them. So that's a huge impact, and, and that information doesn't easily get out to patients. Docs are not usually uh, doing the testing. Um, it's a very, very expensive test. More and more doctors are using it. Um, but in our view, we think that there's not enough, but until we have the data, you know, there's only so much you can do to push the docs to use it. Yeah, and you're going to show that by looking at the gen- the genetic cause of this person's cancer, this is the best treatment that's either FDA approved or in clinical trials and target that for that right. person. So that's that's a big step forward. And one, one of the things that's important about this study, too, is that it was um, we were substantially assisted by the Adaria Lung Cancer Foundation folks. So this is a lung cancer advocacy and support organization, um, uh, does international work, and they really brought in a very special patient-centric, patient-oriented approach to this study with, with support materials and advice and review of, of our interactions and study design. And that's really important because, quite frankly, you know, I'm the physician sitting in the academic medical center. And it's easy to think, you know, you know medical, technical, 
you know, and forget, you know, what do I need to build in to really understand what's going on in the patient? So they really helped with that. But that's impressive that you and your team put together a team of the expertise of the James, the funding from Pelotonia and the, um, the genetic testing and the lung cancer advocacy of these two other groups. That's, that's quite a team you put together. Yeah, it was kind of a no brainer. (laughs) So, well, sometimes the best ideas are the easiest ones or the simplest ones. So let's talk about the second component of the program. And and what I found amazing is that 30% of people diagnosed with lung cancer keep smoking. Right. So let's back up a second. So for most patients, you know, smoking was the cause of their lung cancer. That's 80 to 90%, you said, I think. That's right. And, and when people hear that, they're like, well, that's their fault, or the yeah. lung cancer patient feels like it's their fault. And to back up and think about this, smoking is a disease of adolescence. People start smoking when they are young yeah. and they think they're immortal and they can stop at any time. Nicotine is powerfully addicting. So most people ultimately do quit, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the term cold turkey or using, you know, a medication, nicotine replacement therapy or some of the pills. But a lot of people just can't. And all of these people want to quit. It just shows you how powerfully addicting nicotine is. You get diagnosed with lung cancer or heart disease and you keep smoking. That's not, you know, free will. You know, you see people who are outside smoking in, you know, five degree weather. Yeah. Uh, their brother dies of lung cancer and they continue to smoke. That's not free will. So, yeah, it literally changes your brain and, you, and it makes your brain and your body crave the nicotine. It, and it actually... And you're sick if you don't do it, right? And it, well, there's withdrawal symptoms, but it's yeah. also an antidepressant, anti-anxiety. Uh-huh. You know, so that's going to affect some of your responses to all of this. And so there's also data that shows that people who smoke have worse outcomes. They don't live as long. They have more toxicities from their therapies. You're talking about while they're in their treatment for lung cancer. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So we also thought about how can we help those folks? So using the same model where we're giving the free advice genomics board to the docs, we now want to give smoking cessation counseling to the patients. So, so most docs... Um, understand that getting their patients to quit smoking is a good thing. Most of those docs don't have the training or the skills or the time to work through with the patient. So what we're going to do is we're going to do count telephone counseling from, from Ohio State, reaching out to the patient with their consent and the doctor's consent, and we'll give feedback back to the doctor. So most patients with lung cancer to help them stop smoking should be automatically given something like, in addition to counseling, nicotine replacement therapy or one of these oral medications. Um, so what we'll do is we'll do the counseling and we'll make recommendations to the doc who will decide what to do. And then if that's not working, we'll make more recommendations to the doc. So we'll work as partnership with their office and kind of fill a critical gap that the docs in their offices don't have the time, the staff to do what it really takes to get a patient to stop smoking. I'm talking about the, the difficult patients to stop smoking. Right. Um, that can get almost as complicated as, as cancer treatment. So what we want to do is we want to work with those patients to see if we can improve their outcomes and their quitting um, as well. Okay. What do you think sort of the big picture If in a year or two when you've um, put together your data, you've hopefully come up with the results that show that this is the way forward. Could this be some sort of national model? Could this be something that other regions or states could adopt? Sure. So we're, you know, testing two things on the genomic side. It's it's getting that testing done earlier, but importantly, having 
a centralized resource resource for the doc to reach out to and say, here's my report. You know, can I get can I get the recommendation? I mean, right. it could be anything from an algorithm that's computerized to, um, you know, an email response system to telephones. This could be coordinated through comprehensive cancer centers like like ours. Um, there's lots of ways to set that up. But that's really ultimately the goal here is to is to impact this, you know, take it on, on a sustainable and, and, and larger scale. For the smoking, it's the same thing. So, so there's national quit lines to help people smoke, but they only serve a few folks. It's kind of a narrow definition of who they can serve. Uh, they're very effective. We know that they're effective, um, but they're also reactive. The patient has to call them. We want to have a system that changes that from being proactive working through the doctor. Um, and see if we can't form those partnerships. So again, that's, you know, that could be something that could be, you know, scalable at quite frankly, not that high of a cost. So I know you've been doing this a long time, a lung cancer expert. What's it like for you? And I think I can tell just from your voice and how passionate you are about this, that this is, you're really excited about this project. Well, as I mentioned, there's been so much going on in lung cancer. You know, this is still a long way out, but I think about when I was in medical school and the HIV epidemic started rising. We were having, you know, young men, um, you know, dying in our ICUs, you know, almost daily. Yeah. And then, and, and it was a six month prognosis. And I had a lot of those patients who I knew would be dead in six months. Then the medication started coming out. And then we realized that we're turning HIV into a chronic illness. And today, Patients die with HIV, not from HIV, with minimal side effects from the medications. That's the hope for something like lung cancer. I mean, maybe we could try to cure this, but in the meantime, you know, with each new therapy, we're prolonging the survivals. You know, let's go for that while we find the cure. And that's all, you know, funded through research, funded through research like Pelotonia. And speaking of funding through Pelotonia, you've been a Pelotonia rider. Yeah, it's great fun and real important. So I think it's appropriate since uh, your project is being funded by Pelotoni, you're a Pelotoni rider. I think even members of your family also ride. Just let's right. let's talk a little bit about Pelotoni and what's your sort of favorite memories from Pelotonia? Well, each one is a special event. Each one's different. I mean, I loved when I first started riding with my um, second oldest son and then my sister came in from California to ride. Um, I love, you know, see, you know, seeing people on their bikes, you just start talking. They have no idea that I'm the deputy director of the cancer center. Uh, you see all the people on the sides of the roads, you know, saying, I support, you know, Dr. So-and-so. And I'm like, I know that doctor. Uh, that is a great doctor. I mean, all of that's great. And then, you know, I have to say that the fundraising is, it's easy. People just hear about the cause. And, you know, I have just in my signature line information about Pelotonia and, I have signature line on your email. On my email, thank you. Yes, and random people will just sort of email back. I could be communicating with some vendor from Amazon, complaining that my package was damaged, and the person literally emailed back and said, "I see, you know, that bike event that looks really good. I'm going to make a fifty dollars donation." Wow, I'm going to add my Pelotonia page link on my uh, email signature now. That's oh, a great idea. So everyone it, out there, it's do huge. That. Yeah, it's huge, and, and and people are supportive. And the other thing I want to say, which is really important, is that I deal with these dollars on a daily basis, helping identify which is the best research to fund. And we take this very seriously. And when I say to people all the time, if you're going to make a recommendation to fund this or you're going to write a grant, 
This is our dollars. This is our family's dollars. This is our friends' dollars. This grant, if you're going to recommend it for funding, because we have these study sections that review these grants with external reviewers, very transparent. I say to people, this grant better be good enough that if we didn't have enough money, you'd go back to your mother and ask for more. Okay. okay? And that's that's the bar for giving out these dollars. And, and people are, are, are very excited about it. And it's just made huge impact. I mean, the study that I'm running right now, I, have, of course, had nothing to do with the selection process. We had an external peer review process um, that was managed by the Kansas Senate director. I didn't know if I would get funded or other very talented teams that, that put the money in. This year, we funded both that uh, endometrial project as well as this lung project. But we set a really by high bar for what to do with this money, and I think that's really important. Okay, and I think, and from talking to you, I think this is a, just a perfect example of the full circle for of Pelotonia, how we can see through you how we raise the money. We can see through you how we're spending some of the money, and then we can see through you, maybe you'll come back and, and fill us in about how we're saving lives in Ohio. And we heard that from you and from um, Dave Cohn on Optech and from Heather Hample on OCCPI, the three statewide programs funded by Pelotonia. So thanks for filling us in and keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.